Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Today, we have our two-part series on China and Europe and how the United States and Europe can work together to address China. Uh, And this pair of episodes goes along with a new report that we've just recently published along with the German Marshall Fund called Charting a Transatlantic Course to Address China. If you haven't read it and you want to, you can find it on the CNAS website. And today we're sitting down with Noah Barkin and Peter Chase, who are both two experts full of wisdom and insight on how Europe should navigate the China challenge. So welcome both uh, Peter and Noah. Thanks very much. I'll just do a quick bios for both, um, although most of our listeners are likely familiar. Uh, Noah Barkin is a senior visiting fellow at the German Marshall Fund of the United States, and his research focuses on China's influence in Europe and the transatlantic relationship. He's also a managing editor in the China practice at the Rhodium Group, and he previously worked as a European correspondent editor and bureau chief for Reuters. And Peter is a senior fellow also at the German Marshall Fund, where his focus is transatlantic economic relations, particularly trade, investment, digital, and energy policies. He previously served as a U.S. diplomat on European economic affairs and later as the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Vice President for Europe. And he was a fantastic uh, resource in our efforts working on uh, the report that we just put out. So thanks to Peter. And a Um, colleague of mine, too, by the way, when he was at the State Department. That's right. Do both of you, Peter and Noah, think that the time is ripe for transatlantic cooperation on China, kind of gauging your level of optimism that this is a, is a good time for both sides of the Atlantic to move out? And I'll note maybe, Noah, we can start with you, because I also noted you just recently tweeted about um, the German Foreign Minister Heiko Maas's tweet, who just described cooperation with the United States as an opportunity to reinvigorate the transatlantic relationship. And he kind of laid out a number of shared interests between the two sides. So I guess, how, how optimistic are you that, that the time is right to move forward on this agenda? Well, thanks, Andrea, for uh, having me. Um, I think the time is right for a dialogue between uh, the EU and the US on China. I think uh, we've been in this strange world over the past four years where I think we, we, we've seen both in Washington and also in European capitals a hardening line uh, on China. Um, you know, some people talk of convergence. Certainly there's a, a agreement on the diagnosis, if not the uh, the right uh, uh, way to respond to China. Um, but we've had this situation where uh, the Trump administration has, uh, hasn't prioritized transatlantic cooperation on China, even though China is front and center of their foreign policy. Um, so it's been very difficult to, for Europe uh, and, and, and the US to sort of sit down and, and map out uh, sort of an agenda um, you know, we just last week we saw uh, Joseph Borrell, the uh, High Commissioner, Europe's top diplomat, and Mike Pompeo uh, speak uh, about China, launch a sort of transatlantic dialogue. I mean, this is ridiculous. This is two weeks before the election, and and uh, these these guys are talking about China for the first time. Now, uh, to be honest. You know, at the lower levels, I think there has been a dialogue going on over the past four years. But 
there just hasn't been the support at the top of the uh, US administration for a more uh, structured dialogue. Um, so I, I think it's gonna be difficult. You know, a lot depends on the result of the US election, um, not just the transatlantic dialogue on China, but um, so many other things. So I think we're all waiting for the result of the election. I think if there is a change of administration, it is gonna become much easier uh, to sit down at the table and, and talk about China. That doesn't mean that uh, Europe and the US will agree uh, on, on, every, um, on every issue. I think there are still big differences. You know, the, China is seen in very black and white terms in, in the US at the moment in Washington uh, and in more grayer terms in Europe. But certainly, I think uh, a change of administration would would open the door to to a dialogue and allow the two sides to to talk to each other. Peter, anything you want to add? Great to see you again. Sure. You know the question the question is good one. Is this the right time? I would say it's long past time. And in fact, in fact, the United States and Europe have been talking seriously about how they cooperate with one another, about issues that China raises, whether it's economic or, or security, for actually for a long time. But I would say in some ways the high point previously was in 2007 and 2008 under George W. Bush's second term. Um, then we had a small thing called a financial collapse, and that derailed some of the discussions during the, the period of the Obama administration. But as Noah said, these last four years, there's been an appearance of cooperation in terms of the U.S., the EU, and, and Japan working together on trilateral issues in WTO. But there, the, when you talk to Europeans here in Brussels, they say the actual cooperation has been pretty weak. Um, there has been a big effort, as Noah indicated at the lower level, to talk to the Europeans about investment screening and investment and security issues, which I hope we can get to, to later. But in terms of actual collaboration, really trying to figure out how the United States and Europe should make changes, uh, help nudge China to change, that I think has been definitely lacking. Well, thank you very much on both of those. <laughs> <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, you know, I, I asked this question um, to a lot of our guests. If, you know, if, what would you recommend to uh, say it's a Biden administration or even a, a second Trump administration? How do you actually operationalize this um, working together? What does it look like? Um, you know, Noah, you mentioned that we would sit around the table and we would talk to one another. And, and, and where is that table? And what does it look like? Is it US, EU? Is it um, NATO certainly would have a role, but, but not as big a role as the EU would, I would imagine. Um, I mentioned uh, at the last podcast, it reminds me of the pictures of the Versailles Treaty negotiations at the Hall of Mirrors, you know, this huge room full of people and big tables and staffers with papers. I mean, what does it look like to, to at least get the ball rolling and, um, and begin to come up with a structure that makes sense in a transatlantic context? Yeah, well, that's a very good question, Jim. I mean, it's the proverbial, the Kissinger question, you know, if I'm calling Europe, who do I, who do I call? Um, 
I think uh, you have to talk with member states and you have to talk with the EU. Uh, you can't uh, do one or the other. Um, I think, uh, you know, the G7 is one format for doing that. You have, uh, you have Germany, France, Italy, the UK uh, in the G7, as well as Japan. Um, uh, you know, there has been talk of this uh, sort of D10 uh, or uh, T12, which uh, uh, CN the CNES came out with a report uh, on that recently. Um, you know, I, I think I think we're going to see the Biden administration probably prioritizing, at least at the outset, uh, talking with the Europeans. You know, trying to rekindle uh, that transatlantic dialogue, and I think that means you know sitting down with. Um, sitting down with, uh, you know, Ursula von der Leyen and Joseph Borrell in Brussels. It means sitting down with Angela Merkel and, and Emmanuel Macron uh, and other leaders. And, you know, it's not easy to, uh, to do this uh, with Europe because there are so many different, um, uh, well, 27 different member states and, uh, and different interests. So uh, it's, it's going to be quite a, uh, quite a challenge, but I think the main, the main message is you really need to talk to the member states, talk to the capitals, and, uh, and, and, and talk to uh, the EU institutions in Brussels, and hopefully find some sort of structure uh, for doing that, you know, whether it's the G7, uh, some sort of broader D10 uh, um, of, of democracies coming together. Um, but I, but that's a big question, you know, and I don't know how the Biden administration is going to approach that. Shall I just go on or would you like to, to change it? You know, NATO, you brought it, uh, uh, Jim, you brought in the NATO question. And I think it's an interesting that in NATO, you've had some very, very intensified discussions about China uh, recently among the members of NATO. Um, which raises, of course, that whole long-term question about the relationship between Brussels and the EU and NATO, although they're both in Brussels, you know, both organizations are in Brussels, and many of the member states of the EU are also members of, of NATO. Um, it, that is a working collaboration between those two organizations will be important. Um, it will be more difficult because of the changing role that the United Kingdom plays. It's no longer a member of the European Union. It's only a member of NATO. And that is already going to change things. But one of the things that's really important is that the Europeans see the discussion about China as not just an economic discussion, that it is an economic and a security, an economic and security and geopolitical, if you wish, discussion. The EU has tended to focus on the economic sides. American administrations have tended to see the EU as being primarily an, an actor in the economic policy world. But I think that that view from Washington, as well as the view from Brussels, is too narrow. So Noah is absolutely correct that if you're going to have a serious discussion between Europe, let's say Europe, not necessarily the EU, but Europe, including the EU and the United States about how to, how to manage the challenges that China presents, then that discussion has to be at um, 
It, it has to involve both the member states, both the countries and the EU, and potentially some of the, the, the people from the United States and from the EU who are also very actively engaged in the NATO dialogue. We've got to bring all these parts, all these parts together. Uh, you know, NOAA has done some really great work on the issue of export controls and technology transfer. The way that the security issue is today, what things that might have been considered commercial technologies are now very much in need to be seen in a broader military domain. So these things have literally, they've come together and we need to be thinking of them in all of those aspects at once. That's a great response, both of those. I, um, it, it can really take us uh, into an area dealing with tech transfer and review committees and a CFIUS-like organization that's a transatlantic, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna leap into a geopolitical follow-up. Uh, Andrea's being very, um, she's being very patient with me to ask this follow-up, and that is, so if you were in Beijing and you began to see the U.S. Uh, in the next couple of years actually being able to get traction on a global response, not just in Europe, but uh, with uh, partners in Asia too, and you're in Beijing and you're seeing this happen, what's your move? What's your move as the Chinese government? Do you sit back and go, oh, you know, uh, we, we didn't mean anything by this. Uh, we're your friends, you know. I mean, what what is their move? Or do they do something to collectively put together, you know, nations that they think are their friends to develop another block? Or do they league up with the Russians, which is what Andre and I are looking at, Russia-Chinese cooperation. What's their move? What did they do? Well, Jim, uh, that, that's that's a good question. And uh, uh, getting into the head of Xi Jinping is is, is a difficult exercise. <laughs> and I wouldn't pretend to, to try to do that. But I think we have been seeing already uh, in the past months um, uh, a real shift on the Chinese side. We, we've seen the top two uh, Chinese diplomats come through Europe uh, over the past months. Uh, we've seen Xi Jinping get on two video conferences with, uh, with European leaders uh, in, the, in the span of a few months. And this is not something that uh, the Chinese president has traditionally done. It's usually been the prime minister. Um, but Xi Jinping has sort of nudged uh, Li Keqiang, the, the, the Chinese premier, aside and is sort of taking this into his own hands. So I think this is clearly um, a recognition on, on the, there's clearly a recognition on the Chinese side that uh, the chances of a, a sort of transatlantic front uh, developing and, and quite frankly, a broader front with, with certain democracies, Japan, Australia, Canada, the UK, et cetera, coming together um, if there's a change of administration. Um, uh, and so we're seeing a much more robust uh, ro robust diplomacy, charm offensive, that kind of thing. Um, you know, the EU and China are still locked in these negotiations on an investment treaty. Um, and I think if, if Biden wins, uh, you're going to see the Chinese side making some tactical uh, concessions in those talks with the EU. And we already saw this, you know, Xi Jinping's um, pledge to achieve uh, carbon neutrality by 2060. This is something that the, the European side had been pushing the 
Chinese leadership to, to do. And he did this, he announced this at the UN General Assembly. Um, I saw that as, as sort of a, um, uh, a message to the Europeans, we are responsible global partners. You can work with us. Uh, and I think we'll see more of that, um, more of these concessions, tactical moves by the Chinese side if Biden comes in, because then I think the chances of, of, of a transatlantic coalition uh, developing in, increase quite significantly. I think one of the things that's important here is that we don't put this all on a change in administration. So the Trump administration has taken a very belligerent tone and attitude and, and towards China and has done so in a way where they basically have said, we're going to do it alone, in part because they felt that the Europeans and others just weren't willing to really stand up to the Chinese. So they just decided they're going to do it their way. Even Mr. Trump, if he's reelected and the people around him have to, have to be aware now that just the blandishments coming from Washington are not enough to make changes in Chinese policy. If anything, my argument would be the way the administration has done this has been in fact to strengthen the argument that the, the Chinese are able to make that it's just those big bad Americans who are trying to browbeat us. And I think that that's, in a way, that's very been very um, counterproductive to the, the ends that the administration wanted to achieve. So if a Trump administration, if Mr. Trump is reelected, and if indeed China is his biggest problem, which I would say that he and his foreign policy and his trade policy people would all agree, that's certainly the language that they use, then, you know, you have to say, hmm, I think maybe I need some allies. So I think that the Trump administration would also be looking to Europe and trying to modulate the way it works with Europe, certainly with respect to China. And that means modulate the way it works with Europe because he can't be beating up on the Europeans on the one hand and asking them to be your best buddies in a fight with another person on the other. So, and I think people need to remember that the George W. Bush administration changed policy pretty radically between its first four years and its second four years with respect to Europe. And they did that in part because it made sense to work closer with Europe, the EU and the Europeans. So it's not impossible that Mr. Trump would do so as well. Um, I think that it's not just what Xi Jinping would do, because I think that Noah had it absolutely right. They're, they want to, it's in their interest to actually kind of peel people apart and they can do a better job with Europe with honey than they can with vinegar. Um, and working on the, the climate change thing, perfectly pitched, you know, pitch perfect. But I think it also depends on Washington, whether it's a Trump administration or a Biden administration, if we continue to use the term of the terminology of warfare, if we continue to talk about China as an economic aggressor, I don't think that the Europeans can get on, on board with us with that approach. So it's not what Beijing does, but Beijing will take advantage of the language that comes out of Washington. And I think that we need to, we need to bear that in mind. 
I think it's it's such an important point, but it's but it will be, I think, um, an increasingly difficult needle to thread because as you were both, both you, Peter and Noah, were talking about, it will be important to get Europe to see China in a geopolitical light. Like if we're gonna make progress on this, we have to move away from it for Europe just being a trade issue. And so I wanna come back to that for a second be, to, to gauge your sense of whether or not Europe is ready to move in that direction, to, to gauge Europe's willingness to see China in a more geopolitical light. And, but I wanna hook it in the recent statements that AKK just made. She had that transatlantic speech that has gotten a lot of attention here in Washington. Um, but she, and, and so she talks about China in the context of Germany's relationship with the United States, but it's squarely focused on the economic realm, on the trade realm. And she lays out kind of the, the challenges that China creates in the trade domain. Um, but she says that our partners, and I'm, I'm reading from her speech, our partners in the European Union and many other nations share these concerns, including the United States, but we do not support every position and every initiative by the government in Washington on this issue. So there's, so there's clearly still um, differences between the United States and Europe that are preventing uh, forward progress. So I guess there's, there's two pieces I would love just to hear you pick up on. One is to what extent will countries like Germany be willing to talk about China in a more geopolitical lens? And two, um, you know, what are some of the key sticking points that policymakers are going to have to navigate, whether it's Biden or Trump, if we're going to move this agenda forward, what are the key issues that, that policymakers on both sides have to navigate? Because there's obviously still sticking points um, important and, and important ones. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm happy to talk about that, Andrea. Um, I think it's an open question, you know, how whether a country like Germany with its close economic ties to China is willing to, uh, you know, uh, change its, its view of this challenge. I mean, I think it, it is already happening to a certain extent. Um, you know, we've seen, uh, I think, largely because of China's behavior during the pandemic, you know, this, this wolf warrior diplomacy, the, the bullying, the threats, um, uh, and also the, you know, using uh, China's uh, leverage with masks and, and, and ventilators and all that uh, for political advantage, sort of exploiting divisions within Europe. Uh, so that has, 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 has led to a sort of change of, of views in Europe uh, you know, looking at China in a different way. And I think Hong Kong was sort of the, uh, the other big um, event which uh, China's imposition of a national security law in Hong Kong, uh, which really affected uh, the views in Europe. So we've seen, there is a debate going on in Berlin about the need to uh, be more vocal to, you know, there was a lot of self-censorship in the past. You know, the view was, if you criticize the, the Chinese, you do it behind closed doors, you don't do it in public. You know, Merkel is the poster child of this approach, but we've seen uh, in, in recent months a, a shift to a certain extent. Um, you know, she, she talked in the Bundestag a couple of weeks ago, uh, using quite strong language to describe uh, China's behavior in Xinjiang, 
uh, repression of minorities. Um, so I think there is a, there is a shift going on. But over to your second question, you know, on the sticking points, um, there there is a real uh, reluctance to you know the word decoupling. Uh, it, it's really it's a taboo word in in Europe in the sense that uh, no one no, I don't think any country in Europe feels that there should be uh, some sort of drastic economic disengagement from China. And I think that's gonna be the real sticking point. It's, you know, there is more of a geopolitical sensitivity in Europe, uh, but when push comes to shove, and, and Peter talked about this, you know, exporting sensitive technologies and all this, you know, Europe hasn't really had that discussion yet. Um, you know, this discussion has become some people would say quite extreme in Washington. You know, some people would say that the the, the administration is just sort of flailing about, and um, and that it's not a sort of structured uh, approach to decoupling or disengagement. Um, but I think in Europe that that discussion really hasn't happened. They've rejected the idea of decoupling um, because it's associated with Donald Trump to a certain extent. Um, and because they have such close economic ties with China. Um, so I think that's gonna be the big sticking point. Yeah, I, I, I think you know, Europe can come around geopolitically. We did see Germany unveil this new uh, Indo-Pacific uh, Indo guidelines. They didn't call it a strategy. Um, so they are thinking in security terms a bit more, um, but I think the decoupling issue is gonna be the big, the big one. How? How does, uh, how does the Trump administration, if Trump is reelected, pursue this? How does the Biden administration uh, approach this? And can Europe and the US uh, find a sort of common ground there? Um, again, this, this actually works very nicely coming after you, Noah, because um, you, you cover everything. And I can just put in one, little, one or two little additional data points that are important. Uh, the first, the first is on the Europeans have been changing for a long time, and I think Hong Kong and Xinjiang were important. Um, but I think that they're, the Europeans are seeing China much more from a geopolitical point of view, and the Chinese are just not their best own best friends. The wolf warrior stuff, the disinformation stuff, has played badly against them, which is why they they sent the the. Um, the emissaries of goodwill uh, that Noah was talking about, Wang Yi and, and others, um, but in the South China Seas as well, you know, the Europeans are aware that there is something going on that the that China's overextension in this respect is something that they need to pay attention to, and there the discussion in NATO is important and does factor in. When you talked about Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer's uh, speech, she's the German Minister of Defense. What's she doing talking about trade? Well, this is coming in and that people are seeing that this is not just a trade issue anymore. On the trade front, the German, you know, German industry a long time ago began to realize that the Chinese were stealing them blind and that, the, that they had let the leverage all go to the Chinese authorities away from them 
to their own competitive disadvantage. And they realized, and, you know, the guys who head up the European Chamber of Commerce in China are great, but they're just as much kind of warriors about Chinese technology theft and things like that as my former colleagues at the US Chamber of Commerce. In fact, they all work together very closely. So I think that there's, there is a shift here that has to do with the Chinese and the Chinese Again, they're not their own good friends, their own best friends. The more they try to push and try to act like Mr. Trump, the, the local bully, the more that they're going to get people responding against them. So they, again, they have, they should be more as they were and a little bit less, a little bit less aggressive. They'll do a lot better here. And I think that that's a question about how Washington, again, if Washington wants to play the aggressive card, we'll push away potential allies here. So I think it's very important to kind of play this with a little bit of nuance, with a little bit of finesse. Boy, this is so much wisdom uh, going over the airwaves here for the past um, couple of minutes. I wish I was taking notes. Uh, each, each presentation here has been a, a memo to a new administration in and of itself. Let me, let me ask you one question. Do you think there's a time sensitivity here as well? I say that because as you all were talking about um, where Europe was vis-a-vis -vis the United States in terms of uh, a transfer of, of sensitive technology, et cetera, et cetera, I, I kept thinking, uh, going, going back again to this uh, practical aspect, it's going to be, it's going to take us long enough for just say a new administration or Trump, I mean, it doesn't matter, but for us to sit down and begin to work together. I, I, I'm so afraid thinking about the European nations within the European Union uh, are trying to come up with guidelines and agreement on tech transfer. And by the time the European nations have caught up with us, if you will, um, or have, have you know, come up with a, a collective approach on, on important topics that we've got to get transatlantic agreement on, it could be a couple of years. Uh, as nations block each other in the negotiations and that type of thing. I mean, I've been at NATO for four years. I know how that can work. So I'm wondering, as we try to get our act together in a transatlantic context, it could be a long time to really get some teeth into, um, you know, uh, into this, this whole uh, aspect, um, and particularly in implementation. So say it's five years, uh, would the Chinese continue down the road and we will find ourselves even further and further behind because it took us that long to uh, set ourselves up? Well, Jim, I think there is a risk and I've been thinking about this recently. I think you're absolutely right that this is gonna take time. Uh, I, I was talking with a senior German diplomat uh, the other day and, 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 and sort of pressing him on you know, wh whether Europe shouldn't be thinking about uh, what it would like to put on the table, whether it's a Trump administration or a Biden administration, um, you know, I, I think it's really incumbent on Europe not to sort of wait for the, the next American president to come to Brussels or Berlin and Paris and, and, and say what they wanna do. I think Europe has to, and this is part of being a more geopolitical entity uh, than, than Europe has been in the past. It, it has to set its own priorities and come to the US and, and, and lay those out. Um, and it was interesting, this, this, this uh, diplomat said, um, well, we're, we're not really in a rush to do this because 
you know, we, we expect it's, you know, it's going to take half a year until the new, uh, you know, if you get a Biden administration, it's not going to be, be till early summer until, you know, all the, the pieces are in place, the policies, the people uh, in the administration. And, and I got to thinking that, you know, next year in Germany is super election year. There, I think there are almost half a dozen state elections. There's the federal election. You know, Merkel's party is already fighting about um, choosing a successor uh, to lead her party into the election. Uh, the pandemic has created uh, huge trouble in, in sort of <laughs> her party coming together and choosing a new leader. And that's being delayed now into 2021. And so there is, a, I think there is a, a huge risk that 2021 is a bit of a lost year. Okay, maybe you, you have some meetings, but I, I think the real discussion may be delayed until uh, until 2022, because the, uh, you know, if you don't have a German chancellor in place, you know, the, the final months of Merkel's term, uh, the German election, I think it's in September of 2021, um, it, it's going to take a while for all this to kind of bed down. Um, and yes, I think uh, China will be getting on with things, so to speak. And uh, uh, I, I think Europe and the U.S. really need to keep that in mind, that uh, they need to move fast and they can't let the political cycle um, uh, prevent, prevent movement. I, on this one, I don't have much to add. I think that there's, except, except if I were us, I would take also a Chinese look, which is, we have to be thinking about this in the long term. And we need to know ourselves, both the Europeans and the Americans, What's the endpoint we're driving for? And sometimes I wonder if we know what that endpoint, what's our goal, what's our objective? And sometimes I feel like we've lost sight of that. We simply be, seem to be saying, we're going to be trying to manage conflict. That's a pretty shitty way, way to do your uh, strategic thinking. I, that's absolutely right. I think that's that's brilliant, uh, shitty and all. I think that it's exactly, exactly right. What, what does victory look like? And I think to really get the uh, to get the Europeans on board, et cetera, we're going to have to have some idea of so how far does this go? And every European country is going to have a have their own cut on that. I just want to throw in one more point, and then again, Andre has been very patient. You know, I think I think what makes this different is that we're not just coming up with a policy on something that we can sit around and kind of hammer out pretty easily what a policy might be. These are very technical discussions about that it, they, at the end of the day translates into money. You know, a nation that's got a nascent uh, uh, tech sector that wants to get into something, uh, your, the European version of 5G, they're going to be very concerned uh, about what they're going to be giving up in terms of their development, if there's going to be some type of screening process on how they might deal with China. I mean, there's, it's going to be something that translates into money. And I raise that point uh, because, I, again, from my experience working in Europe, you know, when it comes to money, <laughs> it takes a long time to get past that. And, and there is the bargaining drives you crazy in terms of 
willingness of a nation to, to do something uh, and, and, and expect something for it uh, from everybody else. Uh, and so it's a it's going to be, I think, it's going to take a lot longer than we think just because of that money aspect of it and the, and the technology aspect that's going to be difficult to explain to a politician who doesn't have a head for this kind of thing. And that politician will say, why do we have to give that up? Why does Brussels get to tell us what we can or can't do in the tech sector? So I, I just think we're in for a long haul. We've got to really focus on it. Yeah, I wonder. Yeah. I mean, I, I just love the point, Jim. I think your question on the urgency piece was spot on. It's a point that we highlighted in the, in the report. I mean, we can already see that China is ahead in some areas like AI and 5G. They've set their sights on leading in additional sectors. So time, I mean, I think it is critical in moving quickly on this. But I guess, what, and I, but I, so I love your point about urgency. And I love Noah's point about what is Europe thinking about and putting on the table and and ready uh, and proactively going to engage Washington on, especially if there's a change in, in administration. I mean, this is something, there is a lot of work, I imagine, that's being done on the U.S. side to lay out a very robust, full agenda uh, for how the United States wants to come back to its European allies and partners and putting, you know, really tangible things on the table to be able to say we're back, we're ready to work with Europe, um, but your point, Noah, is is absolutely right. I don't think there's a very good sense of, of what Europe wants to do. And so I don't know, to, just to hear from both of you, if you were sitting in Europe, what would be the things that you would put on the table um, early on for those first discussions with the Biden administration? Is there low-hanging fruit, perhaps some areas you think where early wins can be had and we can start rebuilding some of the trust and momentum back in the relationship? Or are there things that are especially critical that you think need to be tackled kind of on day one? And, and just to jump in real quick on that point, my fear is that that uh, neither in the United States nor in Europe has much work been done on this. I think in the U.S., our political problems with the uh, Trump administration and their chaos, we just haven't really been able to come up with something because it's because of what we know is Washington these days. In Europe, I'm afraid it's the same way because I've always seen that the Europeans wait for the United States. They, they, it's rare that they come up and say, we've gotten together and here's the plan we'd like to suggest. They're waiting for us to take the first move. That's my fear. One last point is that within the European Union, a lot of times in the past, it was the UK that pressed for action on something. The UK would be the one you know, working Brussels to say, look, we, we got to put something on the table, et cetera, et cetera. They're not in the EU anymore. Uh, they're on the outside now. So within the EU, I think there's probably a bit more drift than there would have been in the past, just to throw that out. But great questions from Andrea. So over to you two guys. Yeah, God, I wish I had the answers to all, the, all these good questions. Um, I mean, to your point, Jim, uh, these are, you know, especially on the technology front, and, and that's really central to this debate, um, you know, digital, I mean, it's all, it all comes together, digital security, human rights, um, uh, trade, uh, it, it's all sort of melding together these days. And um, these are very complex issues, right? I mean, the US uh, has been talking about, you know, the Trump administration has this whole of government approach, um, but you also need industry, you need academia, you need um, uh, you need a, a, a real uh, 
um, very uh, a sort of far-ranging, uh, diverse group of people to make decisions about some of these technology issues. And you know that becomes even more complicated when you when you have 27 member states uh, sitting around the table. So that's going to be a really difficult, uh, complex discussion. Uh, Andrea, to your question about low-hanging fruit, I mean, um, I, I think the relationship, you know, there will be um, uh, a sort of immediate uh, um, bonus or, or, or sort of positive momentum if you see a new administration come in and recommit to uh, the Paris Climate Accord, um, you know, recommit to NATO, recommit to the Transatlantic Alliance, um, you know, perhaps try to get the Iran nuclear deal going again. Um, so that, that will create goodwill. Um, and I think, you know, the, the other side of that coin, I think is probably China for the Europeans and defense spending. Um, so one can envision, uh, you know, Europe and the U.S. sitting around the table and 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 uh, coming up with that. But but you know, in terms of a, an agenda, I think you know the Germans talk about trade, right? They talk about WTO reform, getting the U.S. on board to pressure China within the WTO rather than um, rather than rejecting the WTO and trying to to go around it. Um, and I'm sure Peter has, has views on, on how successful uh, that can be. I mean, the, I don't know if there is a lot of low-hanging fruit. You know, these are very complex issues. Responding to Belt and Road, you know, a, a strategy for the global South, Latin America, Africa, Southern Asia. Um, getting together on those issues, very complex. Um, uh, so it, it's it's... it's Definitely not going to be easy, um, but I think the goodwill will be there if you have a change of administration who comes in and says, you know, we're back in Paris, uh, you know, we don't see you as a foe anymore, um, we're, we're ready to work with you. Um, so I think that that's, we have to hope that that creates a, a certain degree of momentum with a new administration if we do get one, um, um, and that uh, some of these more complex issues that you know will take time to resolve. At least they can get going on them. I'm very conscious of our time, so I'll try to be I'll try to be quick on a couple of things. But look, um, what is the key thing that the Europeans can offer the United States if foreign if people outside China are going to um, help China reform? Because what we're what we're looking for is we're looking for a change in the way China approaches the world, the way it approaches its own polity and economics and things like that. The outside world doesn't have a lot of power there, and certainly not just the United States alone, or even the United States and Europe together. That's not enough to make to shift Beijing's view. It's going to require a diplomatic coalition. And I think that this is something you referred to in the beginning, Jim. So one of the things, the United States having been so belligerent against China and even the new administration, people wondering what their real motive is towards China, 
is going to need the United European Union and Japan to lead this work in building a diplomatic coalition, because it's only when you have a large group of diverse countries that the outside world is actually going to have an impact on Beijing's policy choices. So I think that's very important. I think it's also important for people to know that Europe has done a lot. We talked a little bit about the investment screening. And it's interesting that the EU has absolutely no legal role to play in looking at screening of foreign investment based on national security. And yet somehow they've been able to put together a process that actually tries to get the member states looking at this the acquisition, Chinese acquisition of technologies and data and things of that nature, particularly in the COVID-19 time when a lot of things are undervalued, they've put together a process that's just come into force on October 11th that will make people stop and think about the money angle and try to balance the money angle and the security angle. And I think that that's actually something. Another thing that's really interesting is that they actually are proposing to look at acquisitions by Chinese firms as though there had been subsidies from the Chinese government. They'll look at the way in which the Chinese government is subsidizing firms when they're making acquisitions or when they're bidding on a government procurement contract. That actually goes far, much further than the United States government has done. So we have a little bit of learning to do from them. So I think that those, and there are lots of other things. There's lots of work to be done to talk about different critical technologies and why they're critical, how we do it. We have to resurrect COCOM in a way, but we need to have a COCOM sort of discussion with the Europeans that is technical, that doesn't have to wait until everyone is in, in place, that can start now because it's technical people who are talking about real serious applications of certain technologies in certain in certain areas. And I think that, again, whoever is elected, that discussion, if it hasn't been going on, needs to go on, which brings one final thing in. We need to have a good ability to exchange classified information between the United States and Europe. There have been some moves in that in the past. There is uh, an exchange, a, a method to do some of this with the Council. Uh, the European Council, there needs to be much more serious, practical work on things like that. Uh, just a real quick point then to Andrea. I, on your point on classification, you know, Five Eyes is is one of those subgroups. And not that we would, inc- you know, expand the Five Eyes, but we know how to do a structured uh, Intel relation uh, sharing group that's, uh, that's, that, that, that can work. But on that, Jim, on that, the important thing is on Five Eyes, the UK is left. The UK is left the EU. And you, you raised that. We have not really talked about it. I mentioned it, that, that that is an important thing that Washington needs to think about. Uh, when should Mr. Biden be uh, reelected or be, be elected? He will bring in people who have dealt with the European Union and Europe as a whole, who have come from the Obama administration, the Clinton administration. They know a Europe that is not today's Europe. And they they need to be thinking about how today's Europe functions differently. And one of the key differences is that the United Kingdom is not part of it. 
the, the, the you know, I think just to go to Andrea's question, I think the, a gift that the Europeans can provide us, she, she had said, you know, so what should they put on the table? What should be their, their, some of their top proposals? If they could just give a new administration or the same one uh, after the election, the gift of saying, we have put together a European team. The EU is going to be under the EU umbrella. It's going to have EU and non-EU people here. We've already got the people together. They are ready to go. U.S., when you have finally got your people in, in, in office and you're ready to talk, we're ready. If they could just put together that, that tiger team, if you will, uh, to work this issue with us, that would be a tremendous gift. Yeah, we'll this, was really, yeah this was really fantastic. Um, I mean, we just covered the waterfront of issues. And I think between this episode and the one we did before that talked a little more on the kind of technology and human rights side, I think we've given Brussels Sprouts listeners just such a fantastic deep dive into the dynamics surrounding the transatlantic agenda on China. And I'll just put in one final plug for the report. You know, the question is what should be on the agenda? Well, in that report, we, we, we touch on so many of the, of the things that we talked about here, the importance of acting with urgency, the importance of working not just with Brussels, but also with member states to help with implementation of some of these things. We talk about expanding the coalition beyond just the transatlantic players. And then we tried in the report to come up with a, a very long list of recommendations in each of these different categories from trade, investment, democracy, human rights, and technology of concrete ways that we could move the agenda forward. So hopefully that will be also another resource for listeners. And, uh, you know, hopefully if there is a new administration or if it's a the same administration, some concrete ideas for how we can move this forward. But Peter and Noah, just again, thank you so much. You know, a lot of this report draws on the great work that both of you are doing um, you do such fantastic work in this space. Um, and so we thank you for that and also just for taking your time to, to join us today. Well, thank you very much. It's been great to have this discussion.